This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. Show me the money. I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money. Jerry, you better yell. Show me the money. More on that opening clip in just a second here. What's going down, everyone? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast, episode number 52. Today is Tuesday, September 11th, 2018. I am Patrick Moran. Before getting into anything, I'd be remiss if I didn't say right here at the top that, of course, September 11th will always be an infamous day in this great country of ours. I just need to take a moment to remember all the men and women that lost their lives on 9-11 on this day 17 years ago and to send prayers to the family and friends of all them who I'm sure are still hurting on this day. So my thoughts and my prayers go out to all of you. Okay, on a happier note, you heard that famous show me the money clip at the top from the movie Jerry Maguire. I played that because on today's show, I have the real life Jerry Maguire. The OG, the icon, the legend, simply put, the greatest and most successful sports agent who's ever lived. Lee Steinberg is my guest on the Moranalytics podcast today. We talk about how he became a sports agent, debating Ronald Reagan when he was young, his role in Jerry Maguire, and other Hollywood hits that he's consulted on, his comeback from alcohol abuse and other personal demons, and a client list that, come on, it's second to none, a list that included two Hall of Fame Buffalo Bill players, by the way, Bruce Smith and Thurman Thomas. That's a great interview. Can't wait to bring that to you. After that, my guy Tone Pucks joins for Pat with Pucks. Of course, we're breaking down that abomination of a Buffalo Bill season opener on Sunday. A humiliating, humbling 47-3 loss at Baltimore. Their second worst loss in franchise history. I don't know if this team came out suffering from a playoff hangover. And trust me, I say that completely sarcastically. Or if they're just in a lot of trouble this year. Because based on what I saw in that opener, they're just not very good. They're not. They stunk, man. It was insufferable to watch them play, especially on offense. So we break it down as best we can. And we try to make sense of everything that we saw Sunday. And what might happen going forward. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Let's just dive right in. Here's my interview with the legendary Lee Steinberg. And then right after that, Pat Whitpucks. 
Okay, my guest today is the first true NFL super agent. During his four-decade career, he's represented over 300 athletes, including 63 NFL first-round draft picks and the top overall pick a mind-blowing eight times. He's widely regarded as the real-life inspiration for the legendary movie Jerry Maguire, and he's consultant on other Hollywood hits. Like many of us, he had personal demons take a toll on him, but he came out stronger for it. He's the legendary CEO of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. I'm talking about Lee Steinberg. How are you doing, Lee? It's great to have you on the show today. Happy to be with you. I've done like 52 of these shows now, and every once in a while I get a guest that I get really excited about, so I got to make sure I keep my nerves and everything in check. I want to run down, and it's going to be hard when I do this because I'm going to run down a sample size of just some of the clients that you represented. Steve Young, Troy Aikman, Warren Moon, Oscar De La Hoya, Lennox Lewis, Ben Roethlisberger, and a pair of Buffalo Bills Hall of Famers, Thurman Thomas and Bruce Smith. Do you ever find that hard for yourself to believe that you've been able to represent so many legends and Hall of Famers like you have? I think the key to it is the fact that I try to profile athletes from a character standpoint. And so if someone is willing to retrace their roots and go back to the high school community and set up a scholarship fund, do the same thing at the collegiate level and set up a charitable foundation at the professional level, which makes an impact on the quality of life, that's the sort of person I'm proud to represent. So I've been lucky over the years to have had a pretty superb group who've raised almost a billion dollars for charity. I'm a Buffalo Bills guy, so I got to ask you this. How well do you remember first representing Bruce Smith and Thurman Thomas? Oh, it was absolutely great. Uh, Of course, the Bills went to four Super Bowls, and the irony there is that they lost, but instead of people saying they were one of the two best teams in the NFL for four years straight, which is a miraculous achievement, you know, the fact that, that they didn't win those games sort of stuck with them, but Bruce was wonderful, uh, ferocious athlete, but very uh, gentle off the field, and um, I think Thurman spent his whole career paying back people that uh, didn't draft him in the first round. Yeah, he did. During your career, you've secured more than $300 billion for your clients. That's unprecedented, but obviously. But also, this needs to be known, too. You've, you've also directed more than $750 million to various charities and projects all around the world. How meaningful is that to you? That really is meaningful. My dad had two critical values he raised us with. The first was to treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So whether it's work done putting the 167th single mother and family into the first home they'll ever own, uh, or Troy Aikman endowing a full scholarship, um, we have an opportunity because of the high profile of athletes to trigger imitative behavior. So when Lennox Lewis did a public service announcement that said real men don't hit women, it could do more to change uh, behavioral uh, attitudes in uh, young rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could. So the product of our practice really is two things, stimulating the best in 
young athletes and preparing them to have a really successful second career, and then the role modeling where you can uh, make a real difference in the world. I don't think at the end of the day people will um, remember so much the amount of the contracts negotiated as as they will these programs that make an impact on people's lives. Yeah, that's a great point. Let me circle back actually for a second here, way back. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Because back then, there was no super agent out there when you were growing up for you to aspire to want to be like. You're right. Uh, the funny thing about it was uh, that there were no role models or mentors because the business in 1975 was so rudimentary. As a matter of fact, teams could just slam the phone down and say, we don't deal with agents. Hmm. They didn't even have a guaranteed right of representation until uh, uh, a few years had passed in the profession. Um, I sort of knew I wanted to be uh, a lawyer and uh, and politics seemed to be in, in my future, but I found that this was uh, much better. I I had job offers uh, for being a district attorney and with some corporate law firms and in politics and in television news, actually. And uh, instead, I fell into something 44 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and here we are. Now, I heard on another interview, I've heard a couple of interviews of yours, that you had you kind of debated Ronald Reagan before. So I was student body president of Berkeley in uh, 1970, and the Vietnam War was going on, and we were always protesting. And uh, Governor Reagan, uh, I learned everything I ever needed to know about negotiating from dealing with uh, the governor, who was later president, uh, Ronald Reagan. And later on, he gave me a humanitarian award, uh, but he wasn't giving me many awards in the height of the protest. <laughs> and so yeah, we had some really uh, earthy debates. Do you remember who your first client was? It was uh, Steve Bartkowski, who was the very first pick in the first round of the 1975 draft. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. And I was a uh, dorm counselor going to law school in an undergrad dorm. Well, after I graduated, I was traveling the world. And then Bartkowski had been the very first pick in the first round. And he asked me to represent him. And there there I was brimming with legal experience, never having uh, practiced before. But, but uh, there was a world football league competing with the NFL. And so we got the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And uh, I still wasn't sure I would do this professionally, but then I saw the power that athletes have, the idol worship and veneration they're held in communities across the country. And I thought, you know, forget politics. We can make a bigger impact in um, uh, people's lives through the fact that they uh, worship athletes. Sure. Is it, let me ask you this. Is it, or was it ever nerve wracking for you to go to a meeting with a potential client did you get nervous? And if you did, how did you, how do you go about handling nerves when you have, you know, an important meeting with a potential, you know, big star, a new client? Exactly. I think the key is listening skills so that my job is to, is to go deeper and deeper with a prospective client so that eventually I get beyond surface responses. So we're dealing with someone's values, how they 
feel about short-term economic gain or long-term economic security or family or geographical location for a player, the ability to be a starter, being on a winning team, that constellation of values is going to fit differently into different people's lives. So I've got to draw out another person so ultimately I can understand their deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest uh, hopes and dreams. So people think that suasion and talking is everything. Really, it's listening and trying to form bonds with other people based on uh, what they really feel and what their goals are. And in that way, I can fulfill people. So in terms of nerves, um, I'm so focused on establishing a, a bond and asking probing questions that uh, uh, all my focus is on on that moment. So if you can put yourself into a situation where you're not thinking about the future, you're not thinking about the past, you're not worrying about your cell phone, but all of your energy is focused on whoever's in front of you in this one moment, you can get the most out of every experience. Now, you touched on this a little bit before. One of the things that not just you, but probably a lot of agents out there don't get enough credit for, at least the good ones anyway, is that your job doesn't often end at just getting your guy or, or, or your woman as much money as possible. You know, you also get tasked with helping these athletes set up foundations and programs and way to entrench them into the communities that they're representing, and, you know, and help build their legacy. How much does that mean to you, that part of the job? Um, it's all important. And so I look at an athlete holistically um, as a human being. How can I help enhance um, their life? And so, for example, second career. Um, so you mentioned Bruce Smith. Well, Bruce Smith um, owns part of one of the larger luxury hotels in Washington, D.C., and he's president of a construction uh, company. And so by cultivating Virginia Tuck, Tech alums, he found some really good mentors that that helped him that way. Desmond Howard hosts uh, Game Day. Uh, Troy Aikman and and Steve Young are both on uh, broadcast. Uh, Warren Moon has his own marketing company. We actually had have Ray Childress, who's a retired uh, Houston Oiler, who's mm-hmm. a minority owner of the Houston Texans. Oh wow! So the focus is how can you make the life after uh, sports. Uh, not a second kind of death, but, but a, a exciting uh, experience. I want to talk Hollywood for a minute here now. Okay, let's turn our attention to that. Now, as everyone knows, you're credited with being the inspiration behind Jerry Maguire. When did you first learn about this movie? How did that whole thing go? I mean, at that point, you had kind of already tr- transcended the world of sports agency and became kind of like a, a sports star in yourself. So Cameron Crowe, who was the writer-director of the movie, called me up in 1993 and said he was researching a film that would center on a sports agent and asked if he could follow me around and, and get ensconced into that world. So he started uh, with the league meetings uh, for the NFL back in 93, and he watched what I did, and I introduced him to people. Uh, he went to the draft in 93 where Drew Bledsoe was the first pick. He came to a series of ball games with me, and, and I talked him through things. He uh, came to Super Bowl parties. Uh, he went to pro scouting day with me at USC, and I told him stories, lots of lots of stories. 
So he went off and wrote a very clever script, and my job as technical advisor was to vet the script to make sure the willing suspension of disbelief, how you know if you're a sports fan that players don't talk that way, the field doesn't look that way. So nothing was in that that would uh, jar you. And then I had the job of working with the actors, putting them into role. And one of them was Cuba Gooding Jr., who I took down to the Super Bowl in Arizona and made him pretend all week that he was my client uh, Uh to put him into role. So I worked with uh, uh, the actor. And I've never, it's in the 21 years since it's been out, uh, I've rarely walked through an airport or been out to dinner where someone didn't come up and uh, either say those four words or ask me to say them that start with show. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, one of my favorite things about that movie is it did feel authentic. You know what I mean? Like it looked like the play, like the quarterback was throwing the ball. You know, there's movies out there sometimes where it would be a football movie, but the quarterback doesn't look like he could throw the ball 15 yards. Well, I actually have to. I actually had to help Jerry O'Connell, who played the quarterback Cush, um, throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have a football team. <laughs> Do you feel like Tom Cruise gave a pretty accurate representation? Oh, I think very much so. When I spent uh, time with him, he um, um, it, it's it's not a biographical story. I started with the first pick in the draft that wouldn't make a very dramatic movie. Right. Um, but, um, uh, but it's based on a, a lot of stories, situations that could have, uh, happened. Uh, so what would be my greatest terror the night before the draft where I have prospectively the first pick if he changed agents <laughs> would, <laughs> would be terrifying. So, so some of it's like that, but it, um, uh, it was the highest grossing sports film for years and years yeah. until the uh, blind side came out. And, uh, and from there I went on and, and worked with the director Oliver Stone on a movie called any given Sunday. One of my favorites. And, that, yep. and uh, they originally cast a rapper to play the role of quarterback, but he couldn't throw the ball uh, in, in a way that you would have thought was authentic. So they kept trying and trying and, and he couldn't do it. And so they had to replace him. And it was with a young comedic actor named Jimmy Fox. Yeah. And that was his first dramatic role. Wow. You know, I read from going back to Jerry Maguire for one second. I read that a couple of scenes in the movie, such as Bob sugar, when he swipes in on some of Jerry's clients and Jerry's wife, after he gets married, complaining after he's on a long road trip, that that kind of hit home a little bit to you, a little close to home. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, I went through a period in 1985 where the USFL had died and I had four of the first 12 picks in the draft and I'm, uh, just gotten married. I'm going from city to city, desperately trying to sign them. But, um, the NFL is determined to roll back the salaries because they don't have to compete anymore. So I'm on the road week after week, and it wasn't really great for the beginning of uh, <laughs> uh, of my marriage. And uh, so yeah, there are lots of human moments, and I think that Cameron saw me re- relate to uh, Tim McDonald and Warren Moon and some different people, and he saw there was real caring in those relationships. Um, and with Warren Moon, 
we started back in 1978, and by the time we were done, he had played 23 years of professional football. Yeah, wow. So in that time, the the, the you get very, very close with uh, some of the people, and they become real friends. You mentioned Any Given Sunday, which, by the way, is one of my favorite movies, stars Al Pacino. You also helped out on Love of the Game with Kevin Costner and the popular HBO series Arliss. It's another series that I loved. How did you help out with those? Like, give us a, maybe a cool story or two about either that movie or, or Arliss. Well, um, so let's take any given Sunday. So one of my roles was to spend a night with Al Pacino, who didn't know much about um, football, but was a big boxing fan. And so, you know, I had to sort of uh, talk with him about what it would be like to be uh, a coach and and what your relationship was like with players and all the rest of that. And I was actually in the locker room and I showed them how to bang their pads, you know, <laughs> and uh, and all the rest of it. And uh, Arliss was different. Arliss, I gave all of the things I could never do in my own life, the the nastiest, most venal things, <laughs> and I gave gave them as plot suggestions. Yeah, <laughs> and they so did. Arliss, <laughs> so Arliss has an affair with the wife of yeah. a client. Now, in reality, that would probably be somewhat suicidal. Right. <laughs> but, uh, or Arliss uh, is involved in a team moving to uh, Los Angeles, and he represents the team, the city. He's got massive conflicts of interest. Right. So um, that one I didn't take screen credit for because I gave them um, so many uh, uh, really nasty ideas. Yeah, things not to do. Things not to do, right. But I don't, listen, I don't want to spend any real time talking about your struggles with alcohol in the past or any demons from the past. That's not why I sought you out and why I want you on this show. I sought you out because I've always been a big fan and I knew that you could tell some stories to listeners that they would enjoy, maybe inspire some young listeners out there who may want to get into sports business and management, stuff like that. But I will ask you this one question. What do you think turned it around for you? Like when things in your life on every level were going very bad, what was the point where the comeback of Lee Steinberg began? So I had led a very charmed life, you know, the ability to write best-selling books and be involved with film and having um, 62 first-round draft picks in the NFL and the very first pick eight different years and a big baseball practice and, and boxing and, and basketball. And then in the 2000s, there was a whole sequence of things where my father died of uh, cancer. My kids were uh got a disease that leads to blindness. We lost a house to mold, and then I had problems in my marriage, and, and I turned to alcohol to sort of uh, blunt it. I finally got to the point where um, I remembered those two values of my father, and, you know, being a good father, which I couldn't be because I was uh, uh, too focused on alcohol, and then making a difference in the world, I couldn't do either. So I was... Uh, sitting in my mother's uh, house uh, on my deceased father's bed, sitting there and thinking, and finally I had an epiphany, which is, what am I doing, you know, with my life? Right. And uh, went off to sober living, and and um, I'm now in my ninth uh, year of uh, continuous sobriety. But it's the real quality that's necessary is resilience. It's It's... 
life's going to knock you down. Um, and it's okay to have a reaction to that, but then can you spring back up and understand that, you know, I'm living in the United States, highest standard of living, a free country, a democracy, I'm healthy, you know, other than drinking. Um, what, what really do I have to complain about and how can I be wasting my life that way? So that's what brought me back. You know, and people, I'll tell you what, people on the outside who don't, you know, pay attention to the sports agents in the business side as much anymore. They may think that Lee Steinberg's career is in past tense, but if they, if they think that's the case, clearly they don't know. Among others, you're the agent for Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes, a first runner last year. Also, Tampa Bay rookie running back Ronald Jones, third is on your list. I imagine this is still fun for you, right? Am I right? Oh, it is. Here you've got this magnificent young guy with great values who's, um, uh, going to make a big impact in the NFL. And, and so you sort of want to keep the expectations down so that the first time he throws an incompletion, it's not boo. You know, you'd like, you'd like people to understand that he is uh, having his first year of starting, but he can do freakish things with the ball. I mean, he will do some things on the field that you just haven't seen before. And uh, so ultimately he's going to be a big star. And that's the resurgence, the revival, the resurrection. It just starts new all the time because here's another young man from a great family and, um, and you get to start to journey with him. So it just continues. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to do is to mentor uh, younger people want to break into the field. So we have a agent academy that gives people the chance to try their negotiation skills and their uh, recruiting skills. Uh, we have a sports career conference we're doing on the 15th in, uh, in uh, New York, which has got the experts from every field. You want to work for a team, a league, a conference, an athletic department, sports television, sports marketing, facilities management, whatever. You can get an exposure. And then we've got an online course that um, people can take that's uh, got 10 modules, but it's got 85 different uh, experts talking about different areas of sports. So what I'm trying to do is mentor a new generation of ethical, principled people who know that sports can be used for good, but also have specific skills. Because, you know, you go to law school or business school or even sports management, and they teach you the concepts or the principles but they don't teach you specifically how to negotiate or brand or market or negotiate, do um, uh, recruit or do the things that are really necessary. Now, everything you just mentioned there, among all that, you also do some writing for Forbes now from what I've seen. I've seen a few NFL articles from you. How's that experience I been do. for you? Is that fun? Is something a little different for you? Um, I've been doing it for a number of years. I've written my whole life. And so I sort of wanted, I picked a career that was everything that was fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> I like to write. I like to speak. I want to make a difference in the world. I like movies. Um, uh, it, whatever would give an eclectic ability to sort of have fun with a lot of different fields I incorporated into, you know, being a sports uh, agent and crusade on issues like 
concussion and and domestic violence and bullying and and uh you know I never be able to just sit there and watch wrong occurring in the world and not try to do something about it. Second last question here, okay? What do you want your legacy to be when this is all said and done? When the Lee Steinberg story is over, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, that I tried to make a difference in young athletes' lives and that together we took on basic problems, whether it was at-risk kids or uh, the environment, um, and tr- tried to make a positive difference. Last question. When I get a guy like you who's done it all on this show, I, I need to ask, Somewhere out there, there's a youngster listening to this podcast, and he wants to be or she wants to be the next Lee Steinberg. Besides, you know, taking your course, maybe they're not old enough to do that quite yet. What advice would you offer him or her? Study psychology. Everything in life comes down to interactions between people. And so if you can put yourself in the heart and mind of another human being and see the world the way that they see it uh, through their eyes, you can navigate your way gracefully uh, through life and uh, try and, and hone listening skills, as we mentioned before, um, and then make yourself an expert on on different areas so that you know um, the answer. And then the key is to try to distinguish yourself from the mass. So I'll give you an example. One day, out of the 10,000 resumes we get a year, uh, there was an issue of Sports Illustrated that showed up in the mail. And it looked like Sports Illustrated. It was their font, print type, uh, pictures. Only it was sent by a young man, and there was a picture of he and I on the front cover of this. And every article in this uh, phony Sports Illustrated was how our firm had been enhanced because we had hired him. Um, wow. It showed cleverness. It yeah. showed creativity. So the point is, anything in life that you want to do um, that's really exciting is going to be hyper competitive. So one has to figure out how to elevate yourself above uh, the mass using creativity, thinking outside the square uh, in a way that will distinguish you from every other competitive person. All right, Lee Steinberg. He's on Twitter now, by the way, at Lee Steinberg. The legend, the OG. This was a great throw, man. A great gift for this podcast. I really appreciate you, Lee. Appreciate your time so much. Been been my pleasure. Thank you. Pat with Pucks. Oh, no. We suck again. All right, Tom, before we get rolling, what kind of mood are you in? What tone pucks are we getting with this segment? And please don't tell me that it's politically correct pucks. No, nah, man. I mean, you're not getting politically correct pucks. You're definitely getting a, a, a pucks in a foul mood. It is somewhat aided by a, a horrendous fantasy baseball playoff beat. Oh, do tell. Um, do tell. I like hearing <laughs> that. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. Uh, some no-name middle reliever cost me my entire season by giving up the two inherited runners that he came in to face with two outs, and then he gives up an RBI to, to David Peralta, who started the game on the bench uh, and comes in and, and wins, like, three categories 
uh, in the span of like three batters without getting a single fucking out. Luke Jackson or something like that. Uh, Some guy you'll never hear from again. Uh, All right. I wish Just, I would have known that because he, Luke Jackson would be getting my shout out at the end of this segment. Yeah, well, he's going to get a fucking Twitter hate message from me is what he's going to get. <laughs> All right, listen. I'm more pissed about that than the Bills, but I can, believe me, I can I can still draw up my, uh, uh, you know, my blood pressure from, from a few hours ago because uh, that effectively uh, put a wrap on the Buffalo Bills 2018 season, at least one that... Uh, you know, any, any sort of competitive one that we that we may have hoped for. Well, I'll tell but, you right uh, now, dude, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad that you said a couple hours ago because we're taping this Sunday night instead of Monday afternoon. And I'm doing that for two reasons. Number one, it, it makes my life a little bit easier not to have to do all the taping and editing, all the stuff that comes on Monday with a Tuesday podcast if I could do it Sunday night. But in this case, I don't want you to have time to cool off from it. Well, look, man, I'm just going to tell you, all right, I'm not the same 11-year-old that punched the color out of my television set when Scott Skiles' Michigan State team, all right, took out my beloved Patrick Ewing's Georgetown Hoyas. I'm not that guy anymore, all right? I've cooled down a little bit since, but uh, you didn't you'll, you'll still get plenty from me. You didn't post today on Facebook. I know. Was that I by know. design? Is that because you were watching the game somewhere? Where you didn't have an opportunity, did, did you just make a conscious decision to not post on Twitter or Facebook at all during the game? Because I kind of look well, forward not, to it when they're playing. I'm not bad. stupid. I'm a. I mean, I'm a Peterman backer. Where the fuck am I going today? <laughs> I, I got. Where am I going to go today? You know, I mean, I've. Not only did I did I say I felt he should start, I said I felt he should start because I think he's going to be a good quarterback in this league. And trying to make that argument tonight is is going to be pretty futile. So. I hope you're not expecting me to try to make it. I don't imagine you are. No, I don't think you're going to. I don't think you can at this point. And let me say this much, too, as we all remember very fondly, it was the Bengals who beat the Ravens in Week 17 last year to get the Bills into the playoffs. It feels like ever since then, Buffalo is a team that's like on this thank you tour or something. I mean, they rolled out the red carpet for Andy Dalton last or two weeks ago in Buffalo during the preseason. And then they don't lay a glove on him during the game when he played, what, almost a quarter and a half or so. And then apparently the Bills felt like it was Baltimore's turn to give thanks to on Sunday afternoon. Because, I mean, come on. We got to be real here, dude. The Bills barely even put up a fight. It was a very non-Sean McDermott coached type of game. And by that, I mean, they just didn't look like they had any fight in them. It's one thing to lose. It's one thing to get out class. But in my opinion, it didn't even look like they had any fight in them. Yeah. Um... It was very reminiscent of the uh, the Saints game last year. So we, we have seen, you know, at least, you know, carryovers from la- holdovers from last year. You know, we, we've seen this performance um, from them before. And it's it's one that they have found ways in the past to dig out of. Um, and it's it's also one, though, that, you know, they found a way to dig out of or maintain, uh, you know, some semblance of a close game because they had a quarterback that played that style and they don't have that quarterback anymore. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking more about the quarterback. I don't want to make it entirely about that because your point isn't lost on me as far as this looking like a very, you know, un-Sean McDermott coached sort of team. 
47-3 loss, their second biggest in franchise history. The Bills were held to 153 net offensive yards, their lowest in 12 years, 10 total first downs, their fewest in 38 years, and come on, man, they didn't have a single first down in the first half. Not one. How can an offense be that bad? And listen, we're going after this, we are going to get into it with Nate Peterman and the line and the receivers and all that stuff, but as a unit, And your first game of the year where the defense hasn't seen what allegedly you're supposed to be able to do. How do you go 30 minutes and not get a single first down? It's lost on me, man. Uh, It's it's the answer to that is very much lost on me. I, I will say this. I thought it was a very bad sign for the Bills when on the second offensive play, it was clearly a designed screen pass or swing pass, not a screen, because I don't think there were any linemen involved in it, but it was clearly a a designed swing to Shady out of the backfield. And I mean, they were just absolutely in his hip pocket to the point where, you know, Peterman had to fire it into some open space there. And that just said to me that they, they're in the playbook already. I, I mean, it's just like, they had, you know, they had our number schematically pretty early on. I, I would say, and I can I can tend to sound like, you know, coach speak sometimes, and it's it's not because I'm that impressed by it or I want to sound like it. I believe it, man. All right, when they talk about having to watch the tape and they talk about you know other facets of the of the whole big thing, you know, getting beat. I'm a believer in that, and I think they were beat badly schematically on both sides of the ball, and and I think part of that, you know, uh, as far as the offense was concerned and, and, you know, not getting any first downs, I think part of that was the fact that, you know, Baltimore just just out-schemed them big time. Uh, You know, whoever their their D.C. is, you know, it was a a tough uh, first half uh, of his Bills career for Brian Dayball. I just feel like, you know, I – it felt like a coronation to me of an off season where they just didn't do anything with the offense to make them better. I mean, I've heard it for months. I didn't like it. I don't want to confirm it, but come on. It's true. This offense wasn't really good last year. You know, they lose Eric Wood. They lose Richard incognito. I told you I'll never call him Richie again. They lose Tyrod Taylor. You know, they and even when they were here, they had needs badly besides them wide receiver, a couple guys on the line that were weak, and they did almost nothing, okay? They, they take their free agent money, and they spend it on Star, Little Ailey, and Trent Murphy. Those are their two big signings. You know, they draft Josh Allen seventh overall, but then they use their next four picks on the defensive side of the ball. You know, you hear the phrase sometimes, you get what you pay for. I feel like that's the case right now. They didn't buy shit. They didn't do shit. So they're getting what they paid for, which is a really non-talented offense. It's just, I mean, listen, I'm not saying you're wrong about being dominated schematically, but they're just not good. They're not good. There's not talent out there that could do anything. And Baltimore's not even that great of a team for the record. To me, they're a team that wins eight, nine games or uh, maybe 10 if, if things go their way. They're one of those fringe wildcard teams as far as I'm concerned. We made them look like the 2000 Ravens today. That's how bad it was. And I just think it's because the offense just doesn't have talent. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. 
you know, you certainly uh, have a leg up in terms of prognosticating uh, the team this year with your assessment of the offensive line. They are looking as bad as advertised. Oh. And you were on that. You were on that, you know, well before anybody. You know, that was something that we were trying to convince ourselves of at times. You know, we felt like, you know, there were times when when Groy stepped in for Wood and we didn't take that much of a drop off, that sort of thing. And and then, you know, we both talked about how uh, we would try to convince ourselves of of John Miller being uh, a capable lineman in this in this league because he had a good rookie season and it, it ended up just being smoke and mirrors. Uh, and wishful thinking they're they're obviously pretty bad you know you you hope that they they find ways around it man and and those ways you know they 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 might just be in in airing it out stretching the field because you know when I talk about uh anything scheme related today or you know I think back to what we talked about last week and the cat from uh, Buffalo Rumblings who said they're just going to press receivers. He, he was absolutely right, man. I mean, you know, there was the, the corners, whoever, you know, safeties, whoever it, it, it was, was just in, in receivers, was in everybody's hip pocket all day. And, you know, if you can't stretch the field, that's, that's usually going to be the case. So they've got a conundrum, man. Everything that we were worried about, reared its ugly, uh, ugly face today. Well, I'll say this for a second time now for the people out there listening. This will probably be a moot point by the time you're hearing this because Sean McDermott, we're taping this Sunday night and Sean McDermott will speak Monday and there's at least a chance that he's going to name a starter for week two. But let me ask you this. I don't see how Sean McDermott sticks with Nate Peterman for another week. This has to be one and done in my opinion. If it, I think at this point, after what we saw today, and you combine that, fair or not, with the Chargers game, okay? The bottom line is the guy has had another chance, and he looks probably even worse than he did in the San Diego game. He didn't look any better. So I think if it's not one and done, I think you're going to start to lose his fan base really early if you trot him back out there. Not that he particularly cares so much about the fan base, but I think that's going to be an issue. And I think the media, too, they're going to turn, man. They're going to turn. I've seen it happen. It's going to happen. You're risking a lot if you play this kid again, but that's one thing. Here's the other thing I am concerned about. I think they may lose some of that locker room if they put Peterman out there again. I don't think anyone believes in him. I I just don't. You know, I don't, I, don't I, I, how can I, I, there's no way to answer that right now. The part that I don't agree with is that he would lose the locker room. I don't think anybody's looking at Nate Peterman in, in either one of those two games and saying, you know, to themselves that, you know, he is the reason why or he would hold us back this year. I, I, I don't think, agree with that. Well, I mean, that's cool. I, I mean, I still think they'll look at the rookie and you're sending just as much of a message that you're playing for the future and not the now by going to the rookie as as, as with anything. I just I don't think the locker room is a factor right now in the uh, decision. And as far as the other two components of, you know, where the, the, where the pressure may come from on McDermott or on the bills or whatever, let me just, let me just say this. I could give a fuck, not only, all right, could I give a fuck less about 
what the fan base wants or what the media thinks or anything like that. I hope he does it just so that half this freaking town's head explodes, okay? That's how sick I am of hearing all these know-it-alls, all right, who said that they knew this about Peterman or, you know, their smug little bullshit all day long on Twitter, all right, because they happened you know, to get something right, even though they wrote the bills off entirely last season and they went on and made the playoffs. Now, all of a sudden they're geniuses again, because, you know, they, they, they sold low on Nate Peterman and they're going to rub it in everybody's face in some cases, quite gleefully as well, because you find all kinds of pleasure in the bills failures. Just saying fair point there. But I, again, I, don't agree with you. I feel like when Josh Allen's out there, there just seems to be a different vibe. I feel like defenses got to respect his arm a lot better than they do Peterman. The guy can make some plays with his legs. Don't get, listen, Josh Allen is no finished product. I mean, he holds the ball for too long. He's inaccurate. And we saw a little bit of that during his time today. But dude, he's got to fuck. His ceiling is way higher than Peterman's. Listen, Peterman looked like, and I know you're going to deny this, and I really don't care if you deny it. He plays like he's fucking scared, Okay. His stats against the Blitz are the most, I don't, I can't even, you wouldn't believe me if I told you what his stats are against the Blitz. He plays like he's scared. He's fucking awful, dude. I'm sorry. I hate to say it. I know he's your boy. And I know you had high hopes for him. And you almost sound, if you disagree, you're being like Sean McDermott to me. Because the only way, the only way Sean McDermott goes back to Nate Peterman for another week is if he's just flat out being defiant. That's it. There's no other way. Well, you know, <laughs> the kid has started two brutal road games without ever seeing the field at home one time. I I hope McDermott is defiant, but I don't think that's the reason he would do it. But what, I just want to make sure I, I'm I'm hearing you right. And you're not necessarily this person. Obviously, I've got some media beef going on this, uh, you know, this week with the way you know some of them have responded to this this loss, but. Let's just let's just put it like this, okay? Half this fucking town, including a ton of guys in the media, dudes that you've had on this show, okay, still doesn't admit, still doesn't have to say that they were wrong, that the tank didn't work, even though it's been three years and a whole nother bottoming out along the way. You're right. But, but Peterman guys got to fall on that sword after two games? All right. Out of principle, I'm not going to fucking fall on that sword. I'm not going to do it. OK, I if, I if if those idiots can stand their ground on the tank having worked when you're the worst team in hockey three years later, then I'll stand my ground that this kid can win games in the NFL. I'm not sticking up for the people from WGR. We're talking about with the tank. Let's just throw that out there because I agree with you when it comes to that statement. I just don't agree with you when it comes to Nate Peterman. I think he earned and I was, you know, singing his praises for the last couple of weeks because I thought he was the best quarterback in the preseason. He was. So he gets that first chance. He got first up. He, dude, he fucking fell on his face. He was terrible. Was it, you know, just like in the Cincinnati game with Josh Allen? Was it because of only him? No, of course not. Like I said at the top here, there's a complete lack of offensive talent. I just don't see anything from this kid that suggests that he's going to be good. I just don't. I don't have any confidence in this kid. At least with Josh Allen, I got some confidence that he's going to improve. He's going to get better. This is clearly going to be a lost season. So why wait till week seven or eight? What's going to change between week two and week seven or eight? 
Is Ryan Groy going to be better? Is John Miller going to be better? Is Zay Jones going to get open? Is Jeremy Curley going to catch a pass this year for more than 12 yards? None of that shit's going to happen. So why wait? You saw what Peterman gives you and is not close to enough. Maybe Josh Allen can at least give you some moments to build off of. Unless you still think somehow, some way, Nate Peterman can end up being a starter on his team more than a handful of games. I, I want to give him a home start. That, that's I, I would like to see him with a, a start at home. Obviously, it could be uh, a <laughs> backfire. Could go, it could, it could, it let it him, could throw, let him really throw a bad, bad pass on first down. Let him get nearly picked on third and eight when he underthrows Curly and it's almost picked off. You think that crowd's going to have any rope with him? Any rope? Zero. I hear you, man. I, I I absolutely hear you. Just look, I'm I'm not saying that he'll do something miraculous with it. What what I am saying though is, you know, they are clearly invested in him to some extent, even if it's only as a you know as a long term backup, uh, you know, for them. As I think a lot of people thought he could potentially be, uh, myself being one of them. I would just like to see what he does with a uh, with a start at home and and hopefully some reasonable you know playing conditions and it would be against a defense that yes ate him alive uh, last year but a defense that got e- eaten alive you know today by the Chiefs and that's another reason okay that I I, I would be hesitant. To go to Allen against the Chargers because if Josh Allen doesn't go out there and do what Patrick Mahomes did against the Chargers today, yeah. then it's going to be all oh, it's going all back to that. What you know, it should have been Mahomes instead of Allen. I say fuck that. All right, I don't want to give those people the 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 chance to throw that at me. Let them keep throwing Nate Peterman at me. All right, see it through the first quarter of the season and make the move when we all you know, kind of figured the move uh, would first, you know, be uh, realistic and and that's against the Titans in week five. I say stick to it, stick, stick with it. I think the only way, the the only way Peterman's starting is if McDermott has decided that he doesn't think Josh Allen's ready. It ain't going to be because he has confidence in Peterman. It's just not. I got one more question for you about the quarterbacks. Then I want to move on and get through a couple other things. About a week ago, we were singing the praises of the Bills for trading A.J. McCarron. A week from now, yo, if the Bills, let's just say for the sake of discussion, okay? The Bills don't make that trade. Let's just do that scenario. The Bills don't make that trade. Nate Peterman goes out today against Baltimore, and he's fucking terrible. And Josh Allen, you know, for all this Peterman bashing, Josh Allen wasn't very good either. Based on that, based on how bad Peterman is, I think if A.J. McCarron doesn't get a trade to get to the Raiders last week, he might be fucking starting Sunday against the Chargers. And I mean that. Yeah, it's worth second guessing now. I mean, there's a lot to uh, to second guess a- after a performance like this. We'll see if we're still talking that way in in a week. We're gonna be, but you know, here's the thing: it doesn't matter who the quarterback is because with these receivers, nobody is getting open. Calvin Benjamin looked terrible. He looked unmotivated. Maybe it's frustration with the offense. I don't know. But the guy he has seven targets. He catches one ball for 10 yards. He dropped He dropped the ball. I think it might have been a touchdown that he dropped, too. He's not playing and looking like a guy who's ready to cash in on a big contract after the season. He just doesn't look like... I think it's a fraud. It's a number one receiver, to be honest with you. I think it's a fraud. But that's not what people were saying last year when he took Stephon Gilmore to school against the Patriots. But yeah, it's uh, it's an easy 
narrative uh, after today's game. Well, we could probably put that on a lot of people. And look, man, I'm not, I'm not sticking up for Calvin Benjamin. All right, I said, you know, Joe B's. I don't know if you caught it yet, but you know, Joe B's seven observations. No, I didn't. Uh, you know, have hit uh, hit Twitter shortly before you know we started taping, and he he pointed out. Uh, in rather scathing fashion, you know, how, how Benjamin looked and, and also some of the body language, uh, you know, in the second half and stuff like that. And, you know, he's an immature dude, man. We've seen that. And it's the reason why he doesn't have an extension right now. I think right now, Calvin Benjamin may be the most single overrated player on the Buffalo Bills. I think he's an imposter as a number one receiver. He's a borderline number two. I think as a number one, and just what he's supposed to bring to the table and help this offense and what I've seen today and what I've seen too many times, not to mention, you know, the, the risk of injury, he might be the single most overrated player on the Buffalo Bills right now. Well, you know, I don't know what exactly what that's saying because there aren't very many players on the Bills that are rated <laughs> highly to begin with, you know what I mean? Uh, so, I, well, you know, whatever. He but, pissed me off. Um, yeah, man, I, yeah, he's he's... And and with as many people, uh, you know, who kind of trust the word of uh, of Joe B and 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 others that were on the uh, the Benjamin uh, hate train today, it'll probably be you know it'll probably grow in, in numbers over the course of the week in terms of fan frustration with them as well. And look, you, you know, there are a lot of people that have to you know that have to redeem themselves come Sunday at, uh, at, at new era and, um, Zay Jones, three catches for 26 yards, complete non-factor. I think two of his three catches came late in the fourth quarter. Curly two catches for seven yards. These guys just don't get fucking open, man. They don't. That's part, it's, it's going to be a problem all year. You can either get separation and you can't Brian DeBall this, Brian DeBall that. How are you going to get separation with these receivers? You know, a guy like you who loves Peterman so much, if I am going to give you one benefit at all, it's going to be, how do these guys get open? You know what? You're not an all-22 guy. I'm hoping that you're going to see some clips of it, though. These receivers just don't get open. They don't. I just, uh, can we slow down on me loving Nathan Peterman, all right? I thought he would win the job. I thought he would win the job, and I felt like, he is a uh, of starting caliber in a league that has, you know, some pretty shitty starting quarterbacks in it. But, you know, s- slow down a little bit. I, I, I mean, I like, like I'm not putting gold jackets on the guy. But, yeah, to, to the point of the receivers and to the point of their negligence to do much about it. Yeah, it's 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 a fair point as it relates to the receivers, although. You know, I, I believe I read something where, uh, you know, the Bills gave a pretty good push for Josh Brown. You know, we don't know who tells them no. You know, we don't know who who doesn't even take the visits. You know, I don't think Brandon Bean's stupid. I, I, I just don't. But I also think he got a bit of bad luck with uh, with Eric Wood and then the implosion of of. Richie, Richard, incognito, Richard, Richard, you know, so yeah, yeah, some of that, you you know, I think this is still a team that wanted to run the football. I think that was evidenced by uh, their, their early in free agent signing of Chris Ivory, who I'm not ready to say is washed up yet, man. Okay. I mean, the guy runs fucking hard. He's the third best running back. He's the third best running back on the team. He's the third best running back. 
that's because Marcus Murphy's the shit. And, you he know, is. I like him. Recognized. I do um, like him. I like <laughs> I like you. I like me some Marcus Murphy, man. My point was, though, my point was that I, I think they still wanted to be a team that, that ran the football. And <laughs> so they you lost go out the, and they, you sign Russell Bonine. Russell Bonine is going to help you run the fucking football? And, Ru- and Marshall Newhouse? That's their answer to fixing the offensive line. And Wyatt Teller, who didn't even dress today. They did not enough, bro. They didn't do enough, man. I'm not, I, listen, I know you. I've known you most of my life. You're no Bills apologist. You will rip them harder than anyone I know when you feel like they deserve it. I just don't agree with you here about the unluckiness. If anything, if I'm going to not rip Bean, I would say maybe this year they decided that they were going to go all in on trying to get better talent on defense at the expense of the offense. And then next year when they got the cap room and probably a lot of high picks, maybe next year is when they go all in trying to catch up the offensive side up to the ball. But this year they didn't do shit. And it showed this week, it showed the entire preseason, and I don't see when it's going to not show. Maybe at a home game against the Dolphins, they'll look good or something. I don't fucking know. Well, let me say this, though, man. All right. Uh, you know, when when talking about unexpected scenarios that uh, that hindered the offense, yeah, we'll talk about Wood and we'll talk about Richie. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I'll throw this out there as a potentially unexpected scenario that uh, that hindered the, the, uh, the O. Tremaine Edmonds coming available, all right? Now, I think everybody felt like the Bills were going to, you know, to go after a uh, a middle linebacker at some point in the draft. But, you know, I don't think that they thought they would have to couple picks up to do it, especially after coupling picks up, you know, to go get their quarterback. So, you know, it's it may have been a case where, you know, some of those, the, the, the two or the three or, you know, something like that was meant to be for offense. And they just had to have that, uh, they just had to have that toy, that stud on, on D, you know, I mean, it could be a factor in, uh, in what ultimately, you know, kept the cupboards kind of, kind of dry on O. Well, I'm, with, I'm not going to spend a lot more time. What more can I say about the offensive line? They allow six sacks. Couldn't open up any holes to run. The offensive line's as bad as advertised. I don't even know how many penalties they were responsible for. I stopped keeping track. This week, I guess the one thing I will say is Ryan Groy in particular was awful. I, do you put Bodine in next week? I, I mean, what? Do you, how much worse can it be? That's the only thing I got to say about the line this week. Put Bodine in at center. Do you agree? I mean, I, can he play worse? Uh, I just, I don't think I'm making... I don't think I'm making changes. I think the only change I might make is is getting Vontae Davis back in there if he's healthy. Yeah, that's happening. I, I don't I don't give a shit how slow he is. Okay. That wasn't a speed thing that got Philip Gaines, you know, so turned around on that second and twenty six. That's just a lack of awareness. All right. I mean that that was a, yeah. just terrible coverage. I agree. And I'm not saying it changes a you know much of anything, but you know, I mean, that's a that's a touchdown drive that should have never fucking been, man. You don't give a new series of downs away when you got a team in a in a second and twenty six. If anything, you know, that's something that you turn into a turnover or a sack or something. I mean, that was that was very very deflating. But no, I think you have to 
it's tough to do, but I think you have to have the discipline to say, look, we put in a lot of work to come up with this lineup for week one. It was an awful, awful performance, an awful week for a lot of them. I got to see week two. I got to at least see a half a week two. You know, I just got to. Do you get a five as a fan that this, it feels like we're like two and six right now, even though we've only played one game. Doesn't it feel like one of those two and six first halves of a season after one week? It does to me. Yeah, it's clearly one of the most deflating openers ever. Now, deflating in a different kind of way than, you know, uh, Ernest Wilford catching a touchdown on the last play in the back of the end zone or, uh, you know, those sort of, of deflating opening day losses. But one that just makes you feel like, all your worst fears are about to be realized yep. and, and you're about to be as bad as everybody, um, yeah. you know, thinks you are. And, yep. and that, uh, that's going to sting until you get a chance to take that field again and prove that you're not that Every, I can't backtrack on yeah. it now, man. I just, I can't, you know, I said eight and eight and, and I, I've seen enough football. All right. To know, that you see a lot of teams be something that they're not on uh, on opening day. Maybe this this Bills team is not what we saw today. Well, we talked about all the worst fears coming true, and it doesn't only extend to the offense, because I'll tell you what, the defense wasn't so great either. On the defensive line, I thought Kyle Williams and Jerry Hughes, they looked all right. They looked all right. Shaq, I, he may have gotten hurt. We'll find out more about that on Monday. when You'll know by Tuesday. So the defensive line as a whole was all right, especially against the run. That actually looked pretty good. But just like the preseason, man, no pass rush again. None. Zero. Yeah, I'm hoping. And, and you know, I said this early in, in, in the taping, and it definitely wasn't intended to take anything away from, you know, the, the players themselves getting, uh, you know, just getting annihilated on both sides of the uh, of the ledger today. But I I think the, the lack of a pass rush – is is a little schematic all right was was a little bit uh in, in you know trying to get there with four sort of thing playing that soft zone you know they love dropping dudes back into that into that uh into that zone man um i mean this is a defense that is all about giving you five yards on third and seven i mean it is just you know that that's that's the whole fucking ball game to them right there I'm not quite ready to uh, to panic about that. I, th- I, I still think they could be a good front seven, and I think the second level um, had a pretty good day today, second level being the backers. I did, for the most part, like the play of Edmonds and Milano, a linebacker. Edmonds had seven, sack, I'm sorry, seven tackles, a sack, and a forced fumble, which, by the way, having a sack and a forced fumble, that's more than Preston Brown did in 16 games last year. And I'm not exaggerating either. He had no sacks and no forced fumbles last year. Edmonds was getting swallowed up, especially on the first drive and a half. Maybe it was just nerves or something. But after that, he settled down and he played well. Milano got beat a few times in coverage. But all in all, I thought he played pretty well. Him and Alexander, that was probably the one area of the team that I felt, you know, they acquitted themselves well. If any unit in, the, in this team against the Ravens played reasonably well, I think it was the linebackers. I think about I think about the the you know I mean it was it was dominance clearly in the stats but you know last year's team 
Last year's team doesn't jump off sides. Last year's team recovers the fumble that ju- that falls right into your lap on a punt return. And all of a sudden, a 17-0 game becomes a 17-7 game. You know, I mean, it's just last year's team did those things. And, you know, some believe that those were just fortunate bounces, you know, the sort of things that, you know, can go your way uh, one year and not go your way the next. You don't tend to think of the little things when you lose by 100 points. But, boy, even even the little things, and I guess that kind of goes back to how we started this whole thing, was, you know, it's it's not something that we've grown accustomed to seeing with McDermott. So you talked about Gaines a little bit. Everything you said is right. I mean, he gets turned around on second and 26. I thought that was a pretty big play of the game as well. Teron Johnson gets hurt. Bush gets put into a nickel roll, which he didn't look comfortable in. He got beat a couple times. You've been talking about during the entire preseason that you haven't been big fans of the way Hyde and Poyer have looked in this, back there at safety. They didn't look very good today either. It's not that they looked terrible, but they, they didn't make any plays. Are you worried at all about the secondary? Like when you rank this team, you know, in, in areas of concern, uh, is the secondary still among the lowest that you're worried about? Was this just a bad day at the office for them? Or is it more than you know, that? Because of the fact, like with the defensive line, I'm willing to give them a pass on because I don't have much of a body of work with them playing together because of the fact that Murphy was injured in the, and Williams were injured in the preseason and guys like Hughes and uh, Lele just didn't, didn't play that much. So I still believe in the talent there. And the secondary, you know, those guys were were – they were playing in the preseason. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they were getting torched. And now it's extended to the regular season. So probably a little more concern uh, in the secondary. And it's only been magnified now by, uh, you know, the fact that Davis may have been a uh, um, an ill-advised signing because Philip Gaines sucks. All right? I mean, I don't want to hear anything, you know, you know about – you know, him being a better corner than David. Davis must really suck if, if if Philip Gaines is the guy that you go with because, you know, not only is he turned, you know, upside down by Josh Brown on the second and 26, you know, he doesn't turn his head and he lets a ball buzz right by him on the, on the Crabtree touchdown, which pretty much ended the thing, all right? I, I mean, to me, yeah, to a lot of people, it was probably over at 17 nothing. But I'm still thinking I can get back into that uh, a 17 nothing game. You know, that's the that's the spin it Scully, uh, <laughs> you know, in me. But when Gaines gave that up and, you know, credit Crabtree, that was a gorgeous play to get the second foot down. But I mean, dude, just make a play, make a play on the ball, you know, and he he looks and that's another thing you'll see. In, uh, in Joe B's seven obs- observations, it just says Philip Gaines is going to be a problem. And, uh, y- yo, uh, that's all it takes. That's all it takes in the secondary is one of your corners to be awful and nothing else matters. And they got away with it last year because EJ Gaines wasn't awful. Okay. So you could still be a good secondary. But if one of your corners is awful, it the, the whole thing can fall apart. Who, if you have to pick one, and it's probably not an easy decision because there's not a lot of fucking candidates here. Who's your game MVP? Oh, I, 
Uh, I'm going to go with Matt Milano. I mean, I think a lot of people are giving it to Edmonds because they were uh, just happy to see him make some progress. And, and he's fun to watch because of the, you know, just the freakish, you know, size and, and, and the massive potential that's there. But, you know, Milano had a rocky preseason, yep. you know, and, and was benched a couple times or, you know, he certainly needed some level of motivation and it seemed to pay off today. And he stuck his nose in. He made some tackles. And, um, I, you know, I think that bodes well for the unit, you know, if, if, if he can, can be the Robin to what we hope is, is Edmonds. Batman. I agree with you mainly because can I get that. Can I get that on a, on, on like the little, the little sound bite thing that, you know, where you have the potentially, line? potentially I do agree with you. And I agree with you because he did have a bad preseason. He got to a point where Ramon Humber was pushing him for a starting job. So he did come out and have a good game. I think he reestablished himself as a pretty solid starter. What about on the reverse end, your game LVP. And there's probably 40 of them that you could pick from. Well, I mean, I'm not going with Nate. Joe B already went with. Well, are you Kelvin. are you Joe B's agent or something tonight with this taping? Has there been a lot of? <laughs> this is like the fourth there... Joe B. I, listen, I love Joe B, man. Look, man, he's, pro- I mean, it's, he's it's a top five. He's a top five on this podcast. But goddamn, Joe B, this I'm Joe just, B. Look, I'm just calling it like I like I see it. He's the only read for me. All right, arrows up, arrows down. Behind the sticks. I read them all. I do. I, no, I, I read one guy. No Fair one enough. I'm right. just making sure if Joe B's sliding you a couple bucks for all this. Give me your LVP, man. Honestly, man, I mean, I I, I got to say the weather. I think the elements. Are you, is this spinning Scully? Am I talking to Scully now? The the weather was the LVP. Look, I'm not. Take, throw a bunch of fucking names in the hat, dude, okay? This was uh, a, a debacle, all right? Just. Name your LVP and I'll second. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it's not Peterman. And the reason why it's not Peterman is because I didn't expect much from him. I didn't think he was going to be this bad, but I never expected him to play well. So I'm not surprised. My LVP is Benjamin. I thought he was awful. I, I, it looked like he wasn't trying half the time. He just didn't have any energy. His body language sucked. It's nothing about his game that I like today. And on a team that has very weak wide receivers to begin with, He's got to be fucking special. He has every incentive in the world to want to be special this year. He's playing for big money. He's playing for an opportunity to put up numbers because there's no one on this team that has the talent at receiver that he does. So to have one catch for 10 yards on seven targets, that's just not acceptable. You got to be better than that. You know who else had Kelvin Benjamin as their LVP? Oh, Joe B. Joe B. What a <laughs> shot. How in God's name does this team begin to right that ship against the Chargers? Bro, the Chargers got slapped at home by the Chiefs. You know, they know in their minds, we can't go 0-2. That's the Chargers mentality. I watched that Chargers-Chiefs game, by the way. And I'm telling you right now, even though they lost at home, the Chargers are significantly better than the Ravens. The Chargers' offense is way better than the Ravens. The defense is very good, too. It's not quite as good. They didn't have Bosa today. I don't know if he'll be playing again when when they play the Bills, but does it really matter? Seriously, with the Bills' offensive line, does it really fucking matter if Bosa's played? I don't even think it matters. But anyway, my point is, how do you start to right the ship when you're playing the Chargers, a team that's going to be pissed off come Sunday? 
I think we've got to you got to avoid you know making that mistake that whole you know who's going to be because of what their their season expectation was you know you you go in and say ah there's no way a team like the Chargers go to zero and two you know that they there are guys that had them in the Super Bowl and you know they they've got such you know high expectations for this year they're going to be out for blood look man. You know, I I don't know who the Saints are playing, but whoever the Saints are playing are, are probably looking at them, you know, the same way. There's no way a team as good as the Saints, uh, you know, go to go to zero and two. There's a, a probably more than one, but you know, there's at least one team out there that was a, 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 a everybody's playoff uh, pick that are not going to have a very good season. There are good teams that are going to start 0-2, you know. So I just don't buy into what, you know, what it looks like coming off of this week. Now, if you want to sell me on the fact that they're just fucking better, all right. I don't, do I got to, do I got to sell you on that? Uh, I, I, you know, uh, sure. But I do believe, um, you know, I do believe that home games are are winnable against any opponent in this league that was a big big part of what you know McDermott tried to build you know last year he talked about those home games a lot so we'll see if there's any uh carryover you just got to go you just got to play and and you know hope that you're not as bad as you look today it used to, we used to call this the unpopular opinion I kind of think that's corny and played out. I hear it on fucking Twitter all the time. Everyone's got an unpopular opinion. I like the name Puck Drop. We got Tone Pucks on. So just, it doesn't have to be unpopular. It could be whatever. Just give me your final take for this segment, and we're going to call it the Puck Drop. Go ahead. What do you got? I'm just going to say that sometimes, all right, as much as we look forward to it, it's like the fucking NFL can just make everything worse. All right? It just... You know, the, the baseball season ends, you know, the, the, your team sucks. It just, it bursts the bubble. You, you, you look forward to it and you look forward to it and you look forward to it. And sometimes, man, you're just left to sit there and say, why in God's name do I look forward to this? Because it, it can just ruin you year in and year out. Not bad. Not bad. I'm going to leave it at that with you. But I do... Want to give my shout out. And this week, I'd like to give a shout out to hockey season. Between the excitement of some of these young savers and evidence today that the Bills are, they're going to just be insufferable for a lot of the season. Not all of it, but at least half these games, I think the Bills are going to be insufferable to watch, just like the Sabres were last year. I'm looking forward to watching the Sabres more than I have since the arrival of Jack Eichel. And to get hockey season going on Friday's show, I got Joe Yurden from The Athletic on the podcast. So, Tom, you got anyone you want to give a shout-out to? I'm not fucking Luke Jackson, I'll tell you that much. Dynamite drop-in money. That broadcast school has really paid off. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Once again, big thank you to Lee Steinberg for doing the show. I mean, come on. He's the legend. He's an icon. He's the greatest sports agent who's ever lived, and there's no close second either. To be able to get him on this podcast... Man, what an unbelievable thrill. I'm really grateful for that. Thanks as well to Tone Pucks for coming on, recapping that Buffalo Bills opener with me. I wish we had more positive shit to talk about, but you know what? 
When you go out on the road in week one and you lose by 44, that's what you're going to get. Hopefully next week's conversation will be a little more upbeat and we'll have more positive things to talk about. We'll see. Coming up on Friday's show, it's hockey season again. Buffalo Sabres training camp opens. To commemorate that, I have Joe Yurden from The Athletic on. We're going to get to know Joe. We're going to talk Sabres hockey. I'm really looking forward to doing that. It should be a good time. Speaking of a good time, if you haven't done it already, please go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. It's quick. It's easy. It's free. All you got to do is subscribe. Hit the subscribe button, man. And then, bam, new episodes automatically get sent to your phone, to your laptop, to your iPad, whatever it is that you're using. Automatically, it gets sent there. You play them, delete them after so it doesn't clog up all your storage on your phone. That's all you got to do. And if you don't have iTunes, you can follow us on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are heard. Have yourself a good rest of the week. Hopefully the Buffalo Bills get their shit together really soon because if they don't, it's going to be a really, really long year. Go Sabres.